As I said, yeah, we boys from Perth. A few of the boys went down last year, so uh, we're going to play a couple, well, one, one song. A couple. <laughs> Here all night. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 and to this very special double episode. Now, I guess over the next two weeks is someone who Tim and I have known for ages and someone we both wanted to get on the shows for a couple of years. Wayne Jones started his career in the Australian Army up in the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, including a deployment to Rwanda. He had an extremely distinguished career within the SAS, notably as a free fall patrol commander and did some pretty amazing things in the development of that capability and its employment in an operational sense. Since leaving the Army, he's been able to translate that skill, capability and passion into his current role as CEO of iFly Australia, a listed company which operates indoor skydiving facilities all around Australia and indeed the region. And if all of that wasn't enough, arguably Wayne's greatest claim to fame is the fact that he was the rhythm guitarist and then lead singer of Tongue Charge, the SAS cover band. We're going to feature some Tongue Charge tunes mixed in amongst our discussion with Wayne. We recently sat down with Wayne to chat through his experiences both in and out of uniform. And there was so much goodness that we couldn't keep it all in one episode. So we're going to split these uh, in the first episode this week. We're going to find out a little bit more about Wayne's background and his time within uniform, and then we're going to follow that on next week with a bit more focus on what he's done since um, and some of the challenges, some of the transferability of his military skill, and some of the lessons he's learned as a successful leader within a business context. So strap in for this special uh, two-episode edition of The Unforgiving 60. Righto, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by my co-host, Tim Curtis. G'day. G'day, Ben. How are you? Very well. That's good. How are you? Also well. We are joined by Zoom with, I was going to say an old friend of both of ours, a, a long, long-standing friend. Definitely old. Definitely old. Might be a friend. We'll see at the end of the interview, actually. Wayne Jones, how are you, mate? Very good, mate, and feeling every day uh, older and older. I can see a bit of grey coming through in your uh, bit of growth there, Tim, so I feel, feel all right. I diet so I don't look too young, Jonesy. <laughs> sophisticated. You, you diet? It. <laughs> doesn't look... <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, thanks for having me on, mate. I really nah, it's it. awesome, mate. We've been meaning to do this for a, a long while. As we said in the intro, um, you know, our whole podcast is is geared on talking to people who are leading lives less ordinary. You probably can't get much less ordinary than what you've done. But keen to to get a bit of the backstory, mate. Um, childhood, how'd you sort of get from from um, the South Australian sheep farm or wherever you grew up <laughs> to where you are today, mate? Um, I actually had to go back through and have a good think about all this stuff because, um, yeah, South Australia, little town called Yudunda, Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of in between the Barossa Valley and the uh, Flinders Ranges, sheep country, sheep and wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, small uh, country school. Did you know most of my senior years over the uh, 
the radio type, you know, the classes were, were back to the city. So it was all a little bit, um, I don't know, normal for me at the time, but in hindsight, it was all strange. And, and I guess that's uh, um, one of the reasons why I joined the Army at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. those regional centres, there's not a great deal for you to do once you once you move out of the house and, and want to get out on your own. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's where I grew up. Was there like a catalyst to joining, like apart from sort of getting out of um, Yadanda, like had you had sort of any experience or, or family members or anything in the military? Oh, yeah, my, my dad was in the military. He was, he was, he was in the British um, Army. Uh, he served in um, uh, Malaya, Sakana, mm-hmm. Confrontation, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Fantasi, yep. And, uh, but, you know, he was only there for a little while. He didn't really have much influence on me joining, I think. Um, and I wasn't one of those kids that was always meant to join the military either. Um, I, I think for me it was more about just uh, I was itching to get out and do something adventurous and, and get out of the country and find something new to, to do. Uh, I joined really young, 17 and a half. Right. Um, and uh, I, at the time I was working on an apricot farm down at Cadell, mm-hmm. um, which is a little riverside town. Um, and, yeah, you know, the best prospects in the world at the time. <laughs> had a Tirana fake X Tirana XU1, and uh, I used to drive that around town at 17 years old. So, so you, you gave up your big future in apricots to yeah. um, to see the world. So to Kapuka first up. Yeah. So um, I, I remember I, I just before I joined up, I, I got on my bus and went over to Melbourne to catch up with a, I had a couple of friends over there at the time, and I got back to Adelaide and it dropped me off at Curry Street. Uh, across from the recruiting centre. So I had been thinking about it for a little while at that point, so I went in and had a look. And they showed me a video of all these blokes rolling around the grass, the same video that everyone would have seen. <laughs> and uh, I thought, Jesus, that looks like fun. Um, and they gave me a list of all the jobs in the army that I could do. And I remember the list and flicking through it, and I saw this one called Assault Pioneer. Uh, I had no idea what it was. It sounded pretty cool. So I just ticked that and said, how do I join that? And they all laughed at me and obviously there's uh, this naive guy that thinks he can just kind of waltz into this specialist platoon in the battalion. Um, but weirdly enough, two years later, I was in the <laughs> and I stayed in there for four years and I loved it. Um, so, yeah, I went, uh, got, got through the, that, that process, got to Kapuka, uh, bit of a rude shock to the system, as it is for everyone when, you, when you're 17, and um, marched out of, and then off to Singleton for uh, infantry training, and then marched out of Singleton on my 18th birthday. That was my march out day. Yeah, so, right. Uh, dressed in World War Two battle dress, and then <laughs> off to the uh, the local pub after march out, and that was the start of it all. It would no doubt the be Royal the Exchange or the Royal or the battle Railway or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, and then off to the battalion, went to two RAL or two four at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Both of you guys are... Yeah, where both of us have served, yeah. Um, well, two. And uh, Australia Bravo Company. So, start of the whole new world. And so, to set the scene, we're talking, what is this, about 1992? Uh, so, that was October 90s when I joined. Yeah. And I would have hit Townsville up in uh, the battalion in June 91. Okay. And so, the Australian Army really hadn't deployed for about 20 years by that stage since mm-hmm. Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, we've got a genocide emerging in a country called Rwanda. Yeah, so um, we we had a, a close, I almost got a Somalia gig, and mm-hmm. I was on leave at the time, and I think the battalions had just changed over, uh, and, and one I ended up taking on 
um, the gig, and a few guys went over. A few, a few guys from Two Four were handpicked to go and do the Somali tour. So I was pretty devastated that we missed out on that because you know, as a young fella, you're training all the time. Would you want yeah. to see some action? Um, but yeah, it wasn't too late. I didn't have to wait too much longer before a wander um, piped up. And um, I was in the second position. So out the company went first and, and, and we, we followed them up um, in it was February 95. Um, followed them up with the second contingent as Bravo company. And so you, you mentioned before, you know, this had been something that I guess everyone in the battalion's fighting to do. It's a, a really exciting thing. Um, initial impressions when you got over there, was it pretty exciting, pretty sort of... Uh, I guess that that professional side of things. Yeah, it was it was really um, I don't know how to describe it. Although I, I remember feeling I was scared stiff when when I got mm. off the plane, and you know you're, you're not used to seeing things like that—a whole new country where there's no real rules. I guess you train for a long a long time, but until you actually see the carnage, it, it kind of takes you by surprise. But luckily, it was already set up, so we just kind of fit in and. and moved into the barracks and Alpha Company were already there and they did a handover for us and gave us the rundown on how things worked. Um, and it was a fairly, um, you know, we were in one compound. Uh, I think it was an old university in Kigali and, um, and down the road was the hospital and we were the protection for the medical force. So mm-hmm. as the infantry company, we used to just walk up and down the road, do guards on the front gate, guard all the posts and, uh, and keep our eye on our friends, the... Uh, the RPA across the road who were, who were set up pretty close to us. Mm-hmm. And what did Alpha Company said in terms of their handover of the stuff they'd experienced and, and shaping your sort of expectations as you came in? Yeah, I think their tour seemed um, more mundane. I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of time on the gates and everything else. So by the time we got there, I think they would just they'd have a gut full of the whole place and couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, so I guess I just kind of set myself up for a, for a six-month tour of, of pickets, of endless guard duties, reading yep. plenty of books and, um, you know, just towing the line. And, and uh, I guess a, a lot of things happened on our tour that, that made it, you know, a whole lot different and, and kind of went down in history. Can you talk about what the threat was, Wayne? Yeah, it was, it was as, as a young uh, I think I was a, I wasn't even a Lance Corps, well, a young private in the infantry. You don't, I didn't really understand what the threat was. I didn't really understand, you know, who was doing what and why the Rwandan patriotic army were behaving the way they were and, and why, why certain things had happened. We had some inquiries before we went over and there was a, obviously a, a, a civil war and there was massacres going on everywhere and there was, a, I think, a Belgium uh, UN... Yeah. Uh, piece that, that got murdered on the streets and uh, you know it was really starting to well, it was heating up and um, yeah I, I think the threat for us was more the the unknown there was always this underlying tension of escalation at any time that no one really knew what we would do in that situation because the we were you know hugely outnumbered if, mm. if it ever went bad and we didn't really have the backup that we we're kind of used to having nowadays when we go on operations. We, we didn't really have that. We didn't have any air support or any anything else that could help us out if it went bad. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the, 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 the main um, underlying tension and worry was, was, was that. We knew there was a threat there and if tensions um, raised too high and, and things went ugly, we didn't really know what we'd do other than just hunker down and defend our little compounds. And, of course, you mentioned before main role protecting the medical contingent. Your rules of engagement sort of reflected that, didn't they? 
Yeah, well, the, the ROE was, um, yeah, and once again, you don't really, and we'll probably go into it a bit more later on, but ROE is not one of those things that you really focus on as, a, as an infantry soldier. Um, you know, you, you just assume that you're going to be looked after if something goes bad and you've got to buy, you know, what, what you're told to do. Mm. Um, so it was, it was fairly, I remember it was fairly restrictive uh, and I remember that, you know, um, that I don't want to say that we didn't understand that it was pretty black and white, but it was, it didn't really cover anything that if it went bad, what happens next, you know. So yeah. it, was always, yeah. it was always about this kind of peace um, status quo kind of arrangement. And I guess with the benefit of hindsight, of course, it did go bad at a place called Cabello. Can you tell us a bit about your role there and, and I guess what unfolded over that period? Yeah, so forgive me if I get all the facts wrong because I haven't brushed up on the on the history of it all. It was a long time yeah. ago. But the um, there was a big DP camp out there at Cabello, uh, displaced, displaced persons, and, and they, they weren't really anywhere. They were kicked out of Rwanda, but they weren't allowed into Uganda and they were just kind of, you know, living in... in tarps and makeshift camps. And there's there probably about 100,000 people there. Mm. Um, and we were sent out there as part. I think the, the initial part was um, uh, there was like an aid centre that we set up there to help, you know, distribute food um, from the UNHCR and to uh, also help the other NGOs that were there. There was a lot of organisations there, um, you know, trying to do the right thing and, and keep, keep disease and keep, keep people fed. Um, so our role as, as part of that continuum was to, there was a little suite of doctors and nurses and, and, a, and a couple of infantry sections that kind of rolled in and out on a daily basis. We staged just outside of Cabello uh, in another little campsite and then we were going in on a daily basis, you know, one section and a, and a medical contingent and then kind of rotating in and out um, for, over, for I think it was a couple of weeks at a time. Um, and, and during our, my sections stint in and out, um, that was when, you know, the, the, the Cabello massacre happened. Um, and, you know, the, the start of that was, was one morning we uh, rolled in there and Steve McCrone was the OC and he was, he was a really good bloke too. And um, we, he had, someone grabbed him and said, come on, have a look what happened last night. And he needed a couple of blokes to go with him to help him help, him, maybe just help out with security. So I was one of those guys that was designated to go with him and we moved into the nurse's compound and there was this big long tent and there was just rows and rows of bodies. Um, I don't know how many, maybe 50, um, but really horrific injuries, like sliced with machetes and there was kids and women and, you know, it was really confronting. And I remember seeing Steve's eyes and obviously he, he probably had a family at that time and I didn't, so I didn't really have anything to compare it to. But I remember seeing his eyes and, and thinking, wow, He's, he's really affected, you know. And, but, but to me, it was just a, 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 I guess, all right, yeah, it's a violent place and, and these types of things must happen in these violent places, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was the start of it. And then we, we kind of moved from there and obviously the powers that be were making decisions on what to do next. Um, and then I think everyone just decided to uh, maybe start looking at pulling out of Cabello. Uh, we had a small compound where the doctors and nurses were set up there was a Zambian platoon there, um, also working through the UN. Um, and then just outside the wire that we'd kind of set up, I'm talking like a strand of wire maybe, um, there was <laughs> thousands and thousands of people, the DPs that were really starting to get agitated. So something was going on that we didn't really know what was happening. 
Um, the, the next kind of phase of it was uh, a whole lot of violence erupting from within. So within the DPs, there was people from different tribes, there was people blaming each other, um, there was some, um, um, I guess, people that were in amongst them that were making sure that no one left the camp. Um, so there was all this kind of unrest amongst them, and we didn't know who was who, obviously. We, we had no real idea of what was going on. Um, and then all of a sudden, a, a battalion assault is the only way I can really explain it, commenced from my kind of right flank. And you imagine an infantry battalion moving through, firing, moving through, with machine gun fire and supporting fire and moving, manoeuvring sections. This was happening. And all of a sudden, they just started firing through us, through our little place, into the crowd. Um, and it was, it was on. But the, the weird thing was there was no one actually fighting back. Yeah. So, you know, so we, we, as, a, as an infantry section, you know, we were just wondering what, to do obviously we're all on our guts now laying down in muddy puddles trying not to get shot but seeing all these people in front of us get shot and we're just saying to them let's get get down yep. trying to get out of the way of the bullets and um and yeah and then i guess not really understanding how we could protect them but but also worried about your own self-preservation as well yeah enough you know so yeah. yeah it was a very strange situation and a very uh i guess confronting and uh confusing you know as, as any kind of battlefield yeah. Sure, but that that even more so. And my understanding is that the the RO rules of engagement um, precluded you from uh, using lethal force or firing back to defend the DPs. Is that correct? Well, that was that was, I guess, our understanding of them at that yeah. time. I don't know if that's ever proved different or not. Um, yeah. The reality was, I mean, I think if anyone had shot back at those yeah. guys, the whole compound would have got wiped out as well. Yeah. Um, and that means that the people that we were actually protecting, which were our nurses and doctors, they would have put them more at danger as well. So it was, it was I, I don't know whether it was the ROE that prevented us doing anything or whether or it was just the whole situation. Tactical consideration, yeah. Tactical considerations and just, you know, um, common sense in that situation. Are we better off letting these guys just sweep through, do whatever it is that they're doing? Remembering we didn't really know if anyone, well, obviously people were getting shot and killed, yeah, but yeah. we didn't really know what they were trying to achieve. Um, so by interjecting, you know, were we going to make the situation worse or not? We, we didn't really know. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole lot of unknowns and, and everything else. So what we really could do is, you know, um, do our best to, to, you know, keep that little group in front of us safe um, and keep the compound safe um, and keep those that were injured safe that were inside the compound. Yeah. But that's the very worst of humankind, isn't it? How do you process that in the hours, days, weeks and time that follows, Wayne? Yeah, it's a good question. And obviously everyone has processed it differently over time. And there's a lot of um, you know, books and stories out there about it all from different people's perspectives. Um, I, I, I just remember that at the end, of, it was a very long day, as you could imagine. I mean, this, this kind of went on for a long time. And then at the end of that, we had to go out and inspect the damage and the, 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 the military guys moved away. And then all of a sudden, we're there trying to you know, pick up the pieces and, and bring all the bodies in and try to make it a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, less dangerous, I guess, for, the, for those that were left. Um, so, yeah, so there was a lot of things happening that day, very emotional kind of day even amongst ourselves, and we were a section of eight people um, and different age levels. I mean, I was about middle of the age group, I guess, at, uh, 
the ripe old age of, I think I was maybe 19, maybe 20, I don't remember now. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a, uh, a, uh, uh, an easy one to kind of digest as to what was happening. Um, but I remember at the end of the night, we, 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 we gathered up all the, with those a few little things that we had to do. I remember running in with a, into another compound with Steve Tilbrook to um, grab some other nurses, uh, that French, uh, French organisation, Sons Frontier. We got, we got told that they were uh, in a bit of danger, so we had to run and try to find these guys. And we ended up finding, finding them hiding under the beds in there amongst the big wad of um, dead bodies. Brought them back in, and then we, that was when we got the word to get out of there. So we loaded up the vehicles, um, put everyone in that we could, and, and started a convoy out of the place. But just trying to get out of the place was one of the scariest things I've ever been involved in because obviously we're massively outnumbered and we're sitting in open six Bs from a, <laughs> I guess, an army at the time that wasn't really used to any any full kind of scale operation. So there we are driving out in this big, big long. Um, convoy line in white sixpies trying to get out of the place and the RPA wouldn't let us out. So we had to kind of negotiate our way out the, out the front gate and, yeah, so I went on and on and on. Um, and then that night sitting around drinking a, a cup of coffee, just everyone's – I've got a couple of photos of the boys' faces and everyone's just stone white, you know, no one really mm. – everyone was in shock, I think. Yeah. Um, and then we had to go back in the very next morning. So that night, obviously, everyone was a little bit nervous and uh, – and first thing the next morning, we, we got our stuff together and we went back in um, with another section and, uh, and then started more of the clean-up, picking up dead bodies and, and looking at the aftermath. So it's pretty crazy times. You talk about a section of eight. How important were the other seven people in you resetting to go back in, Wayne? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what gets you to go back in, you know, like you're never going to let them down. It's that old Australian cliche, you won't let your mates down. And I think that, you know, one and all in, we've got to go back in there. We've got to face up to this demon that we just looked at yesterday. Let's go in and see what we can do. And then I don't think there was too much discussion around it, to be honest. I don't really recall us having a little power where I'm psyching ourselves up for it. I think it was just what needed to be done and and uh, one and all in. Let's go and, let's go and sort this out. Um, so yeah, off we off we trotted again the next morning to go and face it all again. And the next day wasn't it wasn't you know, it was still pretty rough. Um, there, was, there was a lot going on, and still a lot of people get shot and a lot of other atrocities. Um, and whilst we were trying to ferry out the sick and uh, and, and injured and uh, trying to deal with the I guess the, the entire situation. So yeah, pretty crazy times. Was there an element, I remember many years later when you and I served together in Afghanistan, you know, part of that, you know, coming back from a, a situation where there'd been some, you know, like a gunfight or, you'd, you know, there'd been dead bodies, nothing on the scale you're talking about, but that ability to, I guess, normalise it, just chat with the blokes who are there, say that was pretty messed up. I mean, I've, I felt personally that was a massive relief valve uh, in that little experience. Were, were you doing that same sort of thing um, in those periods uh, around that Cabello time, just sort of, you know, having those chats with your mates. And- yeah, and then, and that's exactly the only way really to process it. I think you've, you've got to, um, you can't ignore it. You can't block it out. You just got to talk through it. You know, oh, did you see that thing happen? That that thing there, I can't stop thinking about. And someone else go, yeah, I saw that too, mate. But they might have saw it from another angle. Yeah. And then you see your both angles on it. And then someone else might say, yeah, I saw that too, but but I think this happened. And you go through every little minute detail on, on whatever atrocity it is, 
and it helps you compute it. Yeah. Because I think my theory on this is that it's the arm's length theory. So if you, if you can't close the whole loop off yourself, then you're always going to be chewing over in your mind what, what might have happened or what you missed. So if you've seen an event happen from the start, you've seen the, the, the cause of it, then you've seen the event, then you've seen the aftermath of it, you can close that loop. Mm. And, and in my mind, if I can close the loop off, I go, that, that's fine. I've processed it. I've closed that loop off. There's nothing else I could do. I've looked at every other possibility, all the other things I could have done or what I did or didn't do, and I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like anything. If, you, if you've, you, you only get so much information at any given time, whatever it is, whether it's CQB, whether it's Afghanistan or whether it's Rwanda or whether it's business, you only get a certain amount of info fed into you at one period of time. And at that point in time, you can't move that decision point. If you've got to make that decision right there and then, you've got to deal mm-hmm. with the play you've got. And, uh, and as long as you can, you know, put your hand on your heart and say, oh, I did everything I could with that info I had at that time, mm. then, I, then I find that that's, that's kind of um, it's healing. Yeah. Know? So. Yeah. And don't try and use that sort of benefit of hindsight to, to retrospectively judge a decision made with impartial information. Yeah. Exactly. And, and all other factors as well. Like as you get older, you mature more and your, your, your view on things change and you've got your own kids and everything else. And if you start thinking about what would I do now, you're never going to get anywhere. Hmm. You've got to remember what you were at the time. And that, that's kind of, it's kind of how I process it. And, you know, I find that on, on that side of it, for all those guys that were actually on the ground in Cabello, most of them are still in the Army. I went to a, uh, an award ceremony not that long ago in Canberra and most of them were still in. I couldn't yeah, believe right. it. A um, little older, a little fatter. Uh, <laughs> great to see. Um, but they're all still there, still loving it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of the guys that got out are the ones that struggled and ended up, you know, deal, having, having a lot of issues, a lot of PTSD issues. to come back to that the social unit is a form of therapy mm. and you guys have been part of social professional units and social social units and now we're going to talk that about that in a little while you know they say the army's 60 percent boredom 30 percent admin 10 percent excitement and i reckon on that little thing in cabello you got your 10 percent worth wayne then you came back and you made a decision to do sas selection can you talk to us a little bit about that yeah, so um, I had no, I didn't even know what the SAS was, to be honest. I mean, I, I, like I said, I was never one of those kind of guys that was always, you know, green and ready to join the army and had all these ambitions of joining the special forces. Um, but when I was in Rwanda, we had a couple of SAS guys there. And uh, and I just remember, and, and they were also there during the, the some of the aftermath stuff at Cabello. And, uh, and I just remember just, I was in awe, in awe of these guys. They were, they were professional guys. 
Um, everyone respected them. Um, they seemed to be able to do, you know, things that, that no one else could kind of do. They were out, you know, picking up injured people outside of areas that, you know, we weren't allowed to go to. They were just doing things that, that made a lot of sense to me, thinking that if all the shackles were off, what could you do? And these guys seemed to be able to do a lot of that stuff. Um, so they were very uh, um, influential on me. Not that I really spoke much to these guys, but I was always watching them. You know? mm-hmm. and one of the guys was George. That you guys may have already put on the show or you've already spoken, you, you both know him very well. Mm-hmm. But I've told him afterwards that he, he wouldn't have known me in Rwanda, but he was one of the main reasons I did selection. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. It is funny because I got to the unit uh, in the aftermath of you having done selection. Of course, any infantry battalion, anyone who's done selection and gone to the SAS is then spoken of in these hallowed terms. And I remember hearing, you know, Wayne Jones, you know, fitness freak and a mate, you know, super soldier and all this. And the first time I saw you, you had a durry in your mouth, a pair of boardies and double pluggers. <laughs> and I thought, I'm, I'm finally meeting God's gift to soldiering. It's bloody awesome. <laughs> and before we leave the topic of George... As a young troop commander in in one squadron, when I first joined, I think in my first week there, I heard about this guy who'd got censured, which was an incredible occurrence in the SAS. And then, you know, the next day, the guy gets a commendation. It was both of those things, (laughs) pushing the envelope at both ends. So back, back back to your decision to do selection. Yeah, so I um, and see, so, you know, so that that planted the seed. Then I had a, uh, one of my best mates um, ended up going and doing it. And still, still at that point, I thought it was just well beyond me. Like this was what all the fit guys did and all the recon platoon guys did. Not a, not an assault line here. We don't do that type of stuff. Um, eyes and beers, eyes and beers, and uh, propping up the bar at the boozer every night. <laughs> that was our gig. Um, so. Um, so it was always a bit out of reach. And then a mate of mine that was actually in my circle did selection and passed it. And that's what kind of went open up to me and thought, well, maybe this is possible. Maybe it's something that can be done. Um, so, yeah, then I started looking into it a little bit. Um, my two of the guys in my platoon, um, Frosty and Gordy Callow, I spoke to those guys first because they, they were in as well already. Um, those two, both those blokes ended up uh, tragically dying in the Blackhawk um, mm. disaster. But um, they gave me info that I needed to then kind of make a decision. Um, so I started training and, uh, you know, I was never really fit. I was, I was kind of naturally fit. I always played footy and everything else. Uh, but I did love a cigarette and a, and a rum and coke in Townsville. And um, so, you know, I had to actually apply myself and do a bit more training and put a pack on and start walking hills and doing all those things that everyone has to do to pass selection. Mm. Um, but then I broke my, broke my knee playing footy. So I was on crutches. I, I remember doing my first med board for selection course and the doctor, and I was on crutches with a, with a full leg um, plaster or cryo cup or something thing on. And he just laughed at me and said, mate, selection course is in three months. You, you haven't got a chance. Um, so uh, then I had to wait another year and then did, did the 98 selection. So, um, yeah, so it was um, a number of things, that I guess, that put me down that path. And... Um, but, you know, once again, it was more about I was never a war kind of person, never a super, you know, um, military-minded um, person. But to me, it was going to see what Perth was like. I, I wanted to go to Perth. I wanted to experience what it would be like to live in another city. Uh, There's Zanzibar- easier ways of doing that, mate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was the biggest place I'd ever lived in. And, uh, and I loved it up there. Um, but, you know, Perth, I just wanted to go and check out Perth. 
Um, and that was my driver throughout selection pretty much was um, I conjured up this picture of me living in Cottesloe and um, on the beach with, with this fancy car. Because remember, SAS were getting paid a lot more than we were getting paid in the battalion as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I conjured up all these images of my lifestyle over in Perth and that got me through. With a real Tirana. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not a um, fake one. We, we do a lot of workshops talking about motivation and how you've got to be intrinsically motivated. It's got to be passion within you. You can't be doing things for extrinsic things like cars and beachside houses, but turns out you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there was also, I remember too, like I made myself a couple of rules during selection. One was I'm not allowed to put in my uh, withdrawal, self- withdrawal slip yep. until it's sunset. And I'm only allowed to do that when the sun's setting. That was the rule I made to myself because <laughs> at sunset, to me, is the best part of the day. I, I loved it. And, and, and when you're on your own on selection, I would always sit down at sunset and I'd sprawl my stuff everywhere, uh, which you weren't allowed to do in the infantry. I'd down <laughs> at one end, I'd me food, sport, all, and I'd just lay all over the place and I'd look at the sunset and I'd say, no, nah, no, nah, I'll wait till tomorrow. <laughs> and I'd just sit on that every day. Um, but you don't fail, right? We're all, we're all very competitive people. No one wants to fail. And to me, not passing was failing. And, you know, how could I, how could I live with myself but if I didn't pass? So, and, and how did you find the course? Tim always gobs off about how he loved it. He found it easy. I had a very oh, different hang on, experience. Hang on. Well, we were, for the record, didn't find it easy, did enjoy it. What about you, mate? I, I I didn't find it easy and I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> I uh it was it was weird. Like I I, I shared a hoochie with Wazza. You both yeah. know Wazza as well. And we we ended up we didn't really know each other much before that selection course. We were both in the same battalion, but he was in recon and they used to drink Gatorade and shave their legs and I was in Pioneer. <laughs> so we were like pretty much different ends of the spectrum. Um but I really enjoyed we were just kind of leaning on each other the whole time. And um, yeah, and, and once again, it's your mates, and you, and you want to, you you never want to let each other down. So that was one part to get through it. Uh, but no, I didn't love any of it. Um, um, the late night stories of, of what guys had done, because there was in the infantry battalion, you only got one certain type of people. That, that you're all the same. You're, you're all you've all got the same stories. You're all from the same places. You know, you might as well. You know. But on selection, there was all these people that had all these wonderful lives beforehand. So we'd spend our time telling each other stories about what we'd done. And my life was pretty boring. But you had guys that had worked on super yachts and were chefs and were doing this and doing that. And I used to love it when times got – and a freaking uh, a fighter pilot. So, yeah. so when times were tough, I'd be saying, well, tell me a story about what you used to do, you know, when you were sailing around the Mediterranean or what did you do when you were flying F-18s? And so it was, it was really cool. And it was – you know, I'm still young and I still had a very limited experience in anything. So I just loved all those factors of it. And so you got selected. What was your impressions of the unit when you finally walked through the gates? Um, 
I was overwhelmed with the professionalism of the place. I couldn't believe how organised everything was, how um, how supported it all was. Um, it was, mate. We felt like rock stars, absolute superstars, rolling in there. Because on my selection, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was only about eleven of us. There wasn't many of us mm. in the last. It was a very mm-hmm. small selection finishing number. Last of the uh, hard courses? I think it was My- the hardest course. <laughs> in fact, it was the first selection I DS'd on. <laughs> there you go. It was your yeah, fault. I was now. an instructor on Shambles. that very course. Yeah. So you, I'm probably partially responsible for you and Tim Robertson, who we've done a previous episode on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was a hard slog. and um, But anyway, we're all hobbling around and trying to eat a sip and little apple juices because we were wrecks of people by then still in hospital waiting at whatever, whatever happened to him and spent um, most so, of his career in hospital since then <laughs> so they ended up putting us up at the grano and we all sleeping on stretches and we just slept for a few days and ate sandwiches but i just remember thinking how brilliant the place was you know how professional everyone was people were coming up and introducing themselves um we were no longer like the new guys it was almost like you were straight part of the family straight away um it was brilliant. Mm. That was something that blew me away. I'd expected once I got in to be this very small fish in a very big pond and to, you know, you've got to prove yourself lid and all this sort of stuff. But yeah. um, straight away people, even the, the best soldiers in the unit were giving you the time of day. And Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it, I found that pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was, I was um, totally stoked. I hadn't, hadn't and, and for me... And that was the first time I'd actually laid eyes on Perth. I'd pictured all these things about how good Perth was. But then I'd actually seen it and it was everything I wanted to be. Absolutely mm. loved it. So it was a brilliant place to be as a young 20-something, um, living by the beach, earning decent money and having a good bunch of blokes around it. So I want to come back to life in the SAS, but that was walking in the gate. What about your impressions when you left? Had they changed? Not really. Um, I loved every second there. I, um, I had a really good career. Um, timing for me couldn't have been better. Um, I was there for 15 years and I was uh, picked up fairly quickly um, into kind of you know, leadership roles and, and I think I was a patrol commander for a good four or five years even before I then was in battle troop for a couple of years. So I had a really good run. Um, so I only left to set up the business. No other reason whatsoever. I, I was not. I wasn't bored with the place. I wasn't tainted. I didn't have any other issues with it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, but I, I knew it was time to, to go and try something else. Um, yeah. And I reckon, from a pure timing point of view, if you had to pick fifteen years in the regiment's history, that period from when you got in to when you got out, I mean. Bang, Timor kicked off straight away. Then, obviously, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and sort of a whole bunch of domestic stuff. Yeah. Um, pretty yeah. exciting time. It was great times, yeah. And, and you know, and with perfect little gaps in between to, to, uh, to, to become a, a local down at the beach. So that was, <laughs> it was good times. Can we talk about leadership in, in the unit a little bit, Wayne? I mean, you talked about George and his observ- observable behaviour and how that had chronic influence on you and your desire to be part of that unit. When you're a leader, can you talk perhaps about some of the behaviours that you used and or challenges that you confronted? I found um, being a leader in the SAS was... Um, I, I, one of the probably the easiest leadership roles I've ever had because the guys you're leading are all 
uh, driven by the same things. So all their motivations are exactly the same. Um, they want to be the best they possibly can at their job. Um, and you're just there steering them in the right direction, keeping the moral compass in place and making sure that no one gets lazy and that skills are maintained. Um, so I loved every second of it. I had a really, every patrol that I was, uh, patrol commander of, I was very tight with every single bloke in it. We were, we were like brothers and, uh, and we, we had each other's backs and it was, it was brilliant. Really loved it. Really, really uh, uh, rewarding. rewarding how, do you, how do you get the distinction between that leadership like a ship um, in that small group dynamic, just a few people that you're responsible for? You are the nominated leader. Yeah. How, how do you get that separation right? Um, a lot of people didn't get it right. Um, you, you've got to respect comes before mateship. You've got to be respected first and foremost before everything. And if those blokes see a, a, a chink in your armour, uh, they'll exploit it. You know, guys are, guys are go-getters. So, um, and, and you've just got to be the best you possibly can at your job, but also make sure that um, they know that you're their boss and, and that needs to be laid, the, the line needs to be laid down pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, you are. I mean, I was I was always really close with my guys, um, um, but we we never there was never any lines that were crossed when it came to uh, you know um, accountability. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, it, it's a fairly it's a fairly tight balancing act to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was fairly lucky in the fact that I, that I think I had. Um, um, I felt I had it right in those environments and those smaller teams, uh, and I found it quite quite easy. So yeah, I think maybe that's just a, a part of my personality that I'm just lucky to have. So, so high performing team. Um, you know, you talked about the ease of which to lead that particular team. What about challenges that you confronted? Situations that were outside the control of the small group that you had uh, to lead. Can you talk? Tell any stories about challenges? that you as a leader had to overcome? Oh, there was, there's lots. I mean, you've all faced them. You, you don't always believe in what you're doing or you don't always think that the, the mission's right or the way you're going about it's right. Um, but you've got to work through that yourself. And, and, and I think the part about being a leader is if you're not prepared to do the job yourself, no one's going to follow you. You know, you, you can lead away all your life and look over your shoulder and no one's following you, then, you, you know, you're not really doing your job right. So uh, first you've got to process it and believe in, you may, not, you may not agree with what the job is, but you've got to come up with something that you do agree with and you've got to project that on your guys and you've got to do that job perfectly right so that when you finish that job, you've, you've, you've fulfilled your mission mm. and you haven't done something that you kind of, you know, a bit half-arsed. So you've got to really know. Um, I think the first and foremost part is you've got to believe in yourself and then because um, like people will see straight through if, if, you, if you're not being honest and true to yourself. So, um, so yeah, there's plenty of challenging times, that's for sure. Um, lots of times there where things went bad and, uh, you know, you're trying to hold it together and you're, you're freezing cold and, you know, <laughs> you've still got another three kilometres straight uphill to go before the sun pops up over the top. Otherwise, you're caught out there with your pants down. <laughs> you look back and everyone's buggered and looking at you as if, you know, what are you doing to us? Um, yeah, but, I mean, you, you overcome those and, and they get far outweighed with the, 
with the things that aren't so challenging. Amongst your many sort of um, experiences with the Australian Army, you also did an exchange um, with the UK counterpart unit. Yep. Some of the differences or similarities with working with with our our British um, compatriots? Um, I I think on the ground, the guys are exactly the same. Uh, I say that about the Brits and the Americans as well. You know, the the, the actual operators, they're very similar. Um, and as they should be, everyone uses a similar kind of selection process, etc. Um, I found that the environment that we were in was so complex. I mean, we were in Baghdad in 2006, which was the, I guess, one of the craziest times in, in the Iraq, you know, in that, in that portion of the Iraq war. Um, and I mean, that, that was hundreds of DAs every night. It was, it was absolutely crazy time, very busy. Um, so the, the environment was different, but I, I kind of loved it when I, when I understood what, what the hell was going on. Um, their end feeds were so, so good and so clear that I understood a lot more about what I was doing when I was working with the Brits than I ever did with the Australians, um, purely because I think that they were, a lot, uh, they were very mature in that environment. Yeah. Um, now we would have done a very similar job, obviously, if Australia was involved in that, um, but we weren't. So you know, I had nothing really to compare it to. But but I loved every second of that six. Well, actually, I dragged that tour out for about. I think I was on exchange for about nine or ten months at the end. I seem to recall you just didn't come home. <laughs> <laughs> it was, was supposed it to be a three-month gig, and I left yeah. in March and got home at Christmas time. Was so, it the um, work or the allowances? <laughs> I don't know if I was getting paid anymore because because they were getting paid less. <laughs> yeah. Than <laughs> and and because of the you know I, I can say this because my parents are poms, but they're the tightest guys on the planet, mate. So we were living in a in a, an old house, and I, and it had a it had a swimming pool out the back. But they drained the pool purely so they could get more allowances. Because if it had a full pool in it, <laughs> a full of water, they wouldn't have got some hard field pay or something that they were trying to get. So well, I, um, I remember working with a Brit in Afghanistan who was on less money because he'd come from the British Army on the Rhine and apparently they got an allowance for living in Germany, but they didn't get an allowance for being in Afghanistan. So <laughs> he was on less money than he was at home. And yeah. we we're, of course, on whatever it was, a couple of hundred bucks extra a day, tax-free. Yeah. And I, I, I made that. sure he was aware of that every single day. Oh, that, yeah. That I was, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're buying the coffee. <laughs> Pretty sure I was printing up my pay slips on the wall. Then, <laughs> leaving with those guys, but no, that was excellent. Like that, that tour was really good. It was great to see a different war machine in action, mm. and uh, and those guys were unbelievably professional. They had all the resources, they had all the experience, and um, I learned a lot in that six month tour. And and I was, you know, um, I was dead set. I was going to bring it back and improve. You know, where where I could what we did as Australians in, in that type of thing, which I think we ended up implementing some of it into, into the way we handled business um, post, that, post that tour into, into Timor and then again into Afghanistan. So, yeah. I can definitely recall when you were talking about um, sort of not necessarily agreeing with, with the way the mission was, was rolling out, I can definitely recall a couple of occasions where you, I don't think you used the word idiot, but you <laughs> certainly implied that uh, my plan was 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 lame. And and but in all seriousness, you did. Uh, you were able to draw on that that incredible experience you'd had um, with the Brits uh, to to improve our plans as we went into the next tranche of operations. This is when you were in charge. When I was in charge, I was going to say he was speaking truth to power, but I wasn't power. <laughs> I was just. <laughs> we get a lot of idiot stuff 
at our end on a daily basis, Wayne. So maybe <laughs> just an early start to that. All right, let's talk about another social group, Tongue Charge. Should you expect to see something that you'd never seen in somebody you'd known since you were 16, is it long? Is it bold from the blue? Then what is that bold but a glorified screw and that doesn't hold nothing together? How did that start? You're both very busy with your time in the unit and you decided to start a band, the lesser known SAS band. Well, this, was those, this was those gap filling moments that I was talking about before. If it's yep. when timing was perfect. But I, I reckon it started when Chogham was on. So I can't remember what year that was. But um... Another operation. So this was, in fact, 9-11 had just happened. Um and Afghanistan kicked off soon after that. Hmm. And then, of course, they delayed the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Somehow we ended up, because they wanted a counterterrorism force on the east coast of Australia, so they moved our whole squadron up to Brisbane. Um, and we were in limbo in Brisbane for, was it months? Uh, I think we did about two, three months stints here or something. It was a, it was a long time. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> Brisbane in summer with not much to do, you know, it was a pretty wild time. But yeah, I think that was the genesis of it. We, we yeah. thought while we're up here, we might as well start a rock band. Whose well, idea yeah, was it? We had, um, I was pretty lousy on the guitar, but I remember hearing Ben practicing on a balcony somewhere off. I can't even recall if I knew you play guitar at that point in time. Anyway, we just started playing together and then Virgo, another mate of ours, decided, all right, well, I'll learn the bass. And, um, but we didn't have a singer until we kind of come across Crackers a bit later on um, on, that, on that one. But that was, the, that was the start of it. Started playing some covers and um, ended up pretty darn good, if you know. <laughs> <laughs> rest well, is clearly history. There'll be audio to prove whether that <laughs> no. is the case or not. No but audio. What Wayne's point about we, we didn't have a lead singer, and, and Wayne ended up becoming a really good singer, um, but I think at that time we were all pretty nervous about it and then we'd heard about this guy in Two's Garden. you knew him I didn't know him and we invited him around to your place in Cottesloe at one point to you know see what you can do and he stepped up and I've never seen that sort of front man persona yeah. like he was like Michael Hutchins or Jimmy Barnes he just owned it belted out this tune we thought yeah that's that's the front man yeah that was fantastic played the first gig at the Gratwick Club the local um local boozer at work and then uh Took and, on and actually, manager. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on that gig, I, I vividly remember we did everything wrong. We played to a very sober audience and we started while the sun was still up. Yeah. And I vividly remember there was this like 20 metre gap between us and this wall of hate, like literally all these regiment guys with arms folded. And we were playing Santa Monica, that Everclear song. <laughs> and I hit the first chords, dun 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 and then that pause. And I just hear... You suck. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty hard to keep up from there, but yeah, thanks well, to the that, audience. Yeah, it was fun. That's a low light, but you did have some highlights. Let's talk about some highlights. What? What? What, what do you reckon the best moment, Wayne? What, what was your favourite? I don't know. I mean, the, the the gig upstairs at the ABH that night when the they were going to shut us down, the police had called. I think it was about twenty past twelve, and the noise restrictions were in, and. They said, if you play one more song, you never let a player again. And I won't use the language, but 
the crackers pretty much said them straight on the mic and we just played literally, I don't know, for another 20 minutes. And it was only one more song, but the, the, the solo on it, which Ronky played, <laughs> must have played that solo about eight times in a row. It was brilliant. Um, we stretched it out. And, and also played in Afghanistan, yeah. guys. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, um, but I think we'd almost wrapped up by then, hadn't we? Um, we? We were coming back from a patrol on uh, LRPVs, uh, I think, um, probably one of the last times we took the LRPVs out. And I remember it coming over the radio as we were driving back towards TK from up near the uh, Jura Valley somewhere um, that Angry Anderson was in town, two of the force were there. Um, and there was Angry Anderson, Tanya Zayeta and a couple of other names that were singing and performing at that time. Um, so then the radio bands are started because we we're actually coming close back towards the barracks and everyone was kind of starting to think about what was going to happen at this concert. Um, and then Dave Turner, the, the SSM at the time, he was adamant that he was going to put our names forward to play in front of this tour de force thing, you know, and get up, get up on stage and play songs. And there was only myself, Bronky and um, Virgo that were there. Um, so, yeah, he went over and um, said something to them and we ended up going over there and finding Angry Anderson's hut, <laughs> playing him the song that we wanted to play. And uh, he kind of rubbed his eyes and looked at us like a pair of bloody idiots and uh, said, yeah, okay, you can play that song. Sounds good. I think he said it's got good presence or something. Like yeah, yeah. Um, and the next thing I know, we, we were up there on stage that night in our shorts and T-shirts with our really pathetic beards um, and head torches around our necks and, um, yeah, we're playing, playing getting away with it to the whole crowd. Why you waking for Brilliant. And then halfway through the song, I heard this kind of harmonics going on in the background. I'm like, what the hell is that noise? And I look over and Angry Anderson's walked out and he's singing next to us, singing back up to us. The Tonga's career, I reckon. Can we talk yeah. about the significance of that song, Getting Away With It, Wayne? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a song that turned into our... <clears throat> um, we always played the last song of the, of the last set, and uh, uh, it, as, as, as we started... As, as the war started getting more serious, I guess, um, and people started dying and, and, you know, we started losing mates in Afghanistan, it became more of a song that the regiment kind of tied to that we associated with, you know, fallen comrades. And everyone knew the words and whenever we'd get up and sing it, everyone would sing it and there'd always be a bit of a tear in everyone's eye because you'd be thinking about your mate that, you know, might not have come back from that tour. Um, we played it at the anniversary. I remember um, uh, one of the, one of the, I think it was the 50th anniversary, we played it up there and I remember a bloke, a good mate of ours, Matty Loft, who died recently, we were singing that song and I remember seeing his wife um, um, up the front singing it with us, you know, crying. And uh, yeah, so then it, was, it, was, it ended up being a real um, um, kind of sentimental song, I guess, mm. for us, for, for our little crew at that time, you know.
very sadly, Crackers was taken far too early from us. Can you talk about the effect that that had on you guys? Yeah, it was devastating, wasn't it? I mean, um, it was a, a time when, um, you know, the, the way they died was just, you know, you, you're talking about guys here that go on these endless tours and fighting all these bad guys all the time, and then three of them drowned in a, in a car crash. Um, so it caught us all totally, totally blindsided, all of us. Um, we all lost three good mates in one big foul swoop, and Crackers was one of those guys. And um, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a very sad time. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it sobered everyone up a fair bit too, you know, and, and you think you're bulletproof. You always do. And, uh, yeah, so it's never good to lose a mate. But we had some really good times with him. And um, we, we played a, a gig in Cottesloe. Um, um, was it with his brothers? Can't yeah. We played, yeah. We, 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 had a, Fleetwood. Yeah, we had a Yeah, we had a bit of a half-written song, and, and his brothers are brilliant singers. They're, they're very talented. Um, and so we all started singing this song, and it was really good. And I'm still good mates with um, Craig's his younger brother now, who's in a, in a band, a successful, very successful band called Kingswood. Um, you know, so he was very, yeah. He was our best mate, and it's sad to lose him. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you also played the song in a bee hut in Afghanistan on the anniversary of his voice. There's some beautiful vision and audio of that. Yeah. Well, and in fact, when I was just thinking back, because when that accident happened, you were with us in Timor at that time as well, weren't you? And so we, we got this buddy weird... I, I remember getting the call pre-dawn from the commanding officer at the time saying... You know, there's there's been this accident, and you know, these three people are dead, and it was just I couldn't reconcile it because you're so, as you said, you're so used to um, people uh, being in Afghanistan being in danger, and and I remember thinking, well, no, they can't be dead because they weren't deployed, you know, and then all of a sudden lost these three mates, and then deployed a contingent home for the funerals, and oh, I was you know back to back funerals, albeit only well three of them, but. Jesus, yeah, it was a, a really, um, I found it confusing and an emotional sort of time. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that, that year later we were deployed again and, and um, played Getting Away With It in, in honour of Crackers on, and, and, you know, the, the other two, Mick and Dave. And yeah, it was, wasn't a dry in the house, I don't think, at that point. <laughs> Well, that concludes the first half of our interview with Wayne. Stay tuned next week for part two when we look at Wayne's career outside of the Australian military as the CEO of iFly Australia. Until then, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of quality distance run. See ya. Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. 
Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.